0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So, friends, we come to the third Sunday of Lent. Third Sunday of Lent. Now, I I have a pretty good memory, but when it comes to Masses and which masses I do week to week, I have a hard time remembering. So I don't remember. I don't recall which masses I had or preached at at the first Sunday of Lent. If it was the five o'clock, and if you were there, I then great, you remember this. But if not, let me just. I, I shared during that first Sunday of Lent homily. I shared how Lent, the Lenten journey, is the church's annual retreat. Every year, the church gives us Lent as a sort of spiritual reset, it's an invitation back to the basics, to be to be purified, to have some things strip away, to ready ourselves with the great fast in order to be prepared for the great feast. Have you ever noticed that Lent is 40 days of fasting, whereas the Easter season is 50 days of feasting? Right, The feasting season is longer than the fasting season, and that's significant. We fast well in order to feast well. It's very hard to enter into a feast if you've already got a really full belly. But you fast well in order to feast well. The church as a mother wants us to fast well so that we can feast well. And we fast not simply because we're bad or we need to be punished. That's not it at all. The church invites us to fast. Our mother wants us to fast so that we can be focused, so that we can be emptied out, so that we can be filled up on the glory of Easter. So in that first Sunday of Lent homily, I also shared how throughout these Sundays, our mother is retelling us the story Right? It's our story. She's retelling us the entire sweeping story of salvation history in the Sunday readings. And we'll hear these readings in many ways, we'll hear these themes particularly focused in the Easter Vigil. right? The Easter Vigil, the mother of all vigils, seven readings plus, or nine total readings. All of them coming through and telling the highlight mountain peak moments of salvation history. It's the story of how God, because of the calamity of Eden, it's the story of how how God has been trying through covenants and covenant mediators, how God has been trying to to wed humanity and divinity back together. He's trying to glue humanity and divinity back together. All of this culminates, all of these covenants culminate in the gift of the new and eternal covenant of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, right? The Passover, uh, the Passover, Passover of the Messiah, it's the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride in which the two, so long estranged for so long, come together. The union is consummated in the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. So let me just give a little recap, a little bit more recap. So, the very first Sunday, we heard the, about the covenant that God makes with Noah and his family, right? So, the first covenant that's offered after original sin. It's God's first offer of grace back to humanity, trying to glue humanity back together. A marriage proposal, if you will, right? The first is through Noah and his family, but it's broken. The second Sunday of Lent, we hear in the Old Testament reading the covenant that's gifted through Abraham and his kinsmen, right? We hear about the near sacrifice of Isaac on the top of the mountain. And then today, the third Sunday, we hear of the third covenant that God makes through Moses and the Israelites at the conclusion of the exodus. This is important, too. This is like an aside. But last week in the gospel, it was the we were witnessing Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Does this ring a bell? Yes? Yes? Give me some of this. Okay, good. If you're like, I don't remember that. Maybe you weren't at mass last week. I don't know. All right. So he takes Peter, James, and John, leads them up the mountain, and he's transfigured before them. And on the mountaintop, appearing with Jesus in his glory, is Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah, and they're conversing with Jesus, they're talking to Jesus about, Luke tells us, his exodus that's going to soon take place in Jerusalem. Some, most English translations will translate exodus as his departure that's going to soon take place in Jerusalem, but the word is exodus. Jesus, as the new Moses, is going to be inaugurating a new exodus bringing his people from a worse tyranny, the tyranny of sin and death and Satan, bringing us from that place of slavery into the freedom of the sons of God, right? So you have to have the exodus in the background to understand what Jesus is doing in the events of the Paschal Mystery, right? The new Moses, the new exodus. Okay, back to Abraham, back to Abraham, the second covenant. God instructs Abraham to take his only begotten son, Isaac, to this mountain that he will point out to him, and there offer him as a holocaust on the mountain, Mount Moriah, which happens to be the same rocky outcrop that centuries later Romans would erect crucifixes, crosses for public execution. It's the same mountain. Where Isaac was nearly sacrificed is the same spot where Jesus offers up his life. Isaac is walking with his father, and he asks his father, Here is the knife and here is the wood for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb, is the question he asks. Where is the lamb? And Abraham responds to his son, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Now you have to realize, in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, I think also in modern Hebrew, there's no punctuation. (laughs) There's no punctuation. So that sentence, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice is this sort of double entendre. Yes, God is going to provide himself. God himself is going to provide the lamb, which he does, this substitutionary lamb that takes Isaac's place on the mountain. But even more than that, God provides himself eventually as the lamb, right? He provides the lamb that gets slaughtered in Isaac's place. But this lamb's blood spilt on Moriah, this is not the end of the story of lambs spilling their blood, so several centuries go by, and God's people, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Jacob, they had found themselves in a place of slavery, enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. For 430 years, they're enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. A situation of abject slavery, hopeless, stuck, But the Father, who so loves the world, who so loves the race of men, whose heart is moved with compassion for us, he does not abandon them. He does not abandon us to the domain of death, to this situation of slavery. He acts and he calls Moses, Moses, to be the next covenant mediator. Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, the exodus, right? This is the central event of the Old Testament. And their exodus, their departure from slavery into freedom, is preceded by mighty signs and wonders. Right? The plagues that God brings upon Egypt. It's God's judgment upon the gods of Egypt. It's God leveling his judgment upon them. You have to realize this. That's what the plagues were. They were God's pronouncement that I am the true God and they are not. For in Egypt, they had a whole panoply, a whole pantheon of all sorts of gods. They had a god of the Nile. They had a god of cattle. They had a god of amphibians and frogs. And so God rains down upon them all sorts of frogs. He turns the Nile into blood. He destroys all their cattle. He sends upon them locusts. Right? All of these are Egyptian gods, and God is pronouncing sentence upon them, saying, I alone am the true God. And the final God, the final God that is unmasked as a sham, is the God of life and death, that God himself says, I am the true God of life and death. The final plague, right? The death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. Their exodus out of Egypt, it's preceded by a meal. Right? God instructs Moses to celebrate the Passover meal all, with all the people, that every household was to procure for itself A lamb, a year-old male lamb without blemish, an immaculate lamb, if you will. That's what the word without blemish literally means. Immacula. A spotless lamb. And what the what each household was to do is they were to sacrifice it in the evening twilight, which means three o'clock. They were to take its blood with a hyssop branch. And they were to Smear the lamb's blood upon the, do- the doorpost and the lintel of their house. The blood of the lamb had to appear on the wood of the door to be assigned to the destroying angel. Not only that, they had to eat the flesh of the lamb. If you were a vegetarian in Egypt, you're like, I'll just, I'll just have the lentil soup. And if you were the firstborn, guess what's happening to you the next morning? You ain't waking up. You had to eat the flesh of the lamb. You had to eat the flesh of the lamb. This is what they had to do. They leave Egypt because of the saving blood of the innumerable lambs who were offered up in sacrifice. And before they get to Sinai, where our first reading today takes place, where the covenant is given and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are given to Israel, The Israelites, they find themselves again in a hopeless situation. They are at the shore of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army barreling down behind them. They are stuck, nowhere to go, with death breathing down their necks. There's nothing more they can do. And again, God acts on their behalf. He makes a way for them in an impossible situation. They were utterly stuck. He tells Moses, Moses, stretch out your staff over the Red Sea. It's this outward sign of an invisible power. It's this sort of sacrament, this proto sacrament. Right? Was there any power in Moses' staff? No. But it was a visible outward sign of the invisible power that God was working through him. I often have in my mind the image of Moses' staff when I have my hands over the bread and wine. What are these hands? Yes, they're consecrated. But these hands by themselves can't do anything to bread and wine. Moses' staff by itself can't do anything to a Red Sea. But God working through them can do miracles, right? And that's what he does. He splits the sea in two. And the Israelites, they pass through the water on dry ground. As the, as, and as they cross to the other side, the Egyptians, they come after them into the midst of the sea. But God closes the waters upon them, drowning the entire Egyptian force. And the earliest Christians... We'll hear this reading again at the Easter Vigil. This scene comes up again at the Easter Vigil because the earliest Christians, they saw this scene as such an icon, such a pivotal sign that interpreted for them what baptism is and what it means. We hear this again. During the blessing of the baptismal water, Right, the priest or the deacon who's doing the baptism, we say this in the midst of the world's longest prayer, the prayer for blessing of the water, I think it's the world's longest prayer, Especially when we got like babies are like, man, And you're like, let me just keep praying over this water. Okay, this is a line. Oh God, who caused the children of Abraham to pass dry shod. That means, you know, sh- their shoes, their, their feet are dry. Who caused the children of Abraham to pass dry shod through the Red Sea so that the chosen people set free from slavery to Pharaoh would what? Prefigure the people of the baptized. It's a prefigurement of baptism at your baptism all those years ago, at your baptism all those years ago, and for the 17, gosh, the 17 individuals from our parish who are going to be waterboarded, I mean baptized at the Easter Vigil, who are going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil, like that is what is happening to them. That is what is happening, that we are, they will be by that act, by that ritual gesture, delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred, as Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, we're delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of our God and Father. We're given a new identity. We're given a new, like, a new passport. We don't belong to darkness anymore. We're, we don't belong to slavery. We don't belong to, to Pharaoh and the tyrant. We belong to our God and Father. We belong to our God and Father, that we are saved through baptism. And we become saved through our cooperation with grace, right? And just as then, so too now, the Father says to us, he will say to our 17 who are going to be baptized, it's what he said to them in Exodus 14, 14. It's so powerful. This is what God says. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, is what he says. The Lord will fight for you, and all you have to do, you need only to be still, is what he says. Just stand still. Let me do this for you. Exodus fourteen fourteen. Just stand still and watch as I fight for you, is what the Lord is saying. I want to fight for you. That's who I am. I want to fight for you. I want to save you. I want to see your freedom. I want to see your flourishing. You can't save yourself, but I can, and I desire to do it. And he's saying, let me. I want to see you free, and I want to see you alive. I want to see you radiant. Like That's why, that's why the church asks parents and godparents before the, at the beginning of the baptismal ritual. The church asks them, what do you ask of God's church for your child? And the response is baptism, baptism. What does that mean? Another way of saying that is, God, we want you to do for this child what we can't do. Like, we've given this child natural life, but we can't give them, we can't give him, I can't give her supernatural life. I can't save my child from the clutches of the enemy. I can't make them into a child of God, but God, you can that's so why we bring this child to you, ask you to baptize this child, Lord. So the Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea, they come to Sinai. They come to Sinai, and the Lord delivers unto them the Ten Commandments. And there's something in us as Americans, when we hear the word commandment, there's something in us that just kind of bucks against it. Not that any of us, I hope, gosh, I hope not, are not none of us are fundamentally against the Ten Commandments, if you are, we have confessions on Saturday mornings. And, uh, I mean, I'll die a natural death in my confessional during Holy Week. But anyway, there's something in us that just kind of gets graded upon when we think about the commandments, being told what to do. That's not what they are. In Greek, it's, the word is decalogue. Decca meaning ten, logos meaning words. These are the ten words addressed not to y'all. They're addressed to you. It's, it's the first person, first person singular. It's addressed to you. It's addressed to you. These are the ten words flowing out of the Father's heart for his people. And notice how they begin. Before he gets to the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots, God says this: I the Lord am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery, don't forget that that's who I am. That's the one who's speaking to you. The commandments are not an expression for like, an expression of God's desire to hem them in as if God's like, I don't want you to have too much fun in the promised land. So here's some rules. That's not what they are. They're an expression of the God who liberates. Right? He's saying to them, he's saying to us, if you would be free... You mustn't attach your heart, you mustn't give your heart, you mustn't make a first priority anything else besides me. You mustn't have other gods, you mustn't have other idols before me, otherwise you will find yourself enslaved to them again. Is that not our world? (laughs) Can I get an amen? It is our world. He's saying, if you would be free, you mustn't take my name in vain. Like, do not treat our relationship as something frivolous, as something trivial, as something casual. Like, recognize, he's saying, the sacredness and the high honor that I've bestowed upon you, that you can call me by name, and that I listen to you. You are my son, you are my daughter. Do not be careless about this relationship. If you would be free, you must keep the Sabbath holy. You must come here to let me feed you. You must come here to feast on life itself. Oh, how awful for us. (laughs) You must come here to hear the words that save. You must come here to hear the Father reminding you of who you are. You must come here to have alive in your heart and echoing in your mind the truth about your identity You must come here to be refreshed and renewed and built up again, is what he's saying. If you would be free, you must honor your father and your mother. You you must honor life. You must pursue chastity and fidelity. You must not allow yourself to grasp and take the goods that do not belong to you. You mustn't lie because you are destined for an eternal relationship with truth himself. You mustn't get in the habit of of deception and falsity because you will become allergic to truth, allergic to your eternal destiny. You mustn't allow your heart to be stirred with envy. Friends, this is our God. He is for us. And this chapter of the story that we hear on this third Sunday of Lent, the Exodus and the covenant on Sinai, it is so significant. It is the backdrop for understanding what the Lord is doing for us in and through his Paschal mystery, in his passion, his death and resurrection at Easter. If we don't have these lenses, we're not going to grasp it. We're not going to grasp it. So may we grasp it a little bit more to be overwhelmed and in awe of what he's done for us and what he does for us. Amen. Amen.